Scene 4. Poor Richard's Comeback. Town Hall of Ithaca. Spy Woden's Day. Sext. Noontide. 5th of April, 1284. Ah, welcome, Grand Sage Cornwell. The Baron of Amherst puts on his most charming smile. It is most gracious of you to allow me this opportunity to clear up the misunderstanding between us when we first arrived. Please, have a seat by the fire. May I offer you some wine? The Grand Sage wears his academic robe without the hood. His face is stern, and his attitude is skeptical. The Silvermorn College of Sorcerers deeply mourns the students who lost their lives in defense of Ithaca, a town they had called home while studying with us. Regrettable! says the Baron, as his chief herald, Sir Sean, comes over to pour out two cups of wine for the Baron and his guest. Cornwell refuses, so Sir Sean places both cups on the little table beside the fireplace. The Baron is wearing red slippers and a smooth red robe that is the closest medieval garb to a roaring twenties smoking jacket. A tragedy, really. Such bright promise for the future cut short because their leaders failed them. You and I need to put our heads together to make this right. A simple apology, no matter how sincere, just won't be enough. Grand Sage Cornwell stares Amherst straight in the eye. You took the words right out of my mouth. It's because we both have the same vision for leadership in English society, Amherst stalls, waiting for the Grand Sage to relax and let down his guard. Quite frankly, my lord... Your vision of leadership resembles that of a bully on a child's playground. That's exactly why I asked you to come. Such misperceptions can only lead to more unnecessary bloodshed. We must come to an understanding before it costs us any more English lives. What more do I need to understand? You attacked the walls of Ithaca, and my students rallied to its defense. Some of them died. The Baron looks at him with pleading eyes. Please have a seat, Master Grand Sage. We discuss such weighty issues, and it would only be proper to observe the suitable decorum in our conversation. Grand Sage Cornwell stiffly takes a seat on the couch and says, Only because of the grave responsibility on my shoulders, of informing the families of those deceased students, do I force myself to sit down and hear you out. The Baron of Amherst sits across from him and stares into the fire as if in deep thought. He says, Yes, these parents are making great sacrifices to send their sons and daughters to Silvermorn in hopes of ensuring a successful niche for their future. They are immensely proud of their child's talents and accomplishments. Amherst looks at Cornwell thoughtfully, but Cornwell keeps quiet. I've just heard too many cases of brilliant young sorcerers returning home only to find out that the Sorcerer's Guild demands that they travel farther afield because all the local jobs are taken. Unemployed sorcerers have a bad reputation for causing mischief. Still no response from Cornwell, but Amherst can tell he is touching on a raw nerve. As a way of putting the past in the past and opening up a brighter future, I'll offer to hire any and all unemployed graduates of Silvermorn. Cornwell perks up and asks, At full wages? Absolutely at full wages. Four pence a day? Threepence a day starting wages until they prove their worth. I usually pay at least double for competent ones. Several sorcerers at my court are making a dollar and sixpence a day after accomplishing legendary quests in my service. They could retire before forty, but they enjoy the position so much, they stay on. And you will put this in writing? Yes, we have prepared a document extending the patronage of my court to Silvermorn College. But you have no authority here in Ithaca. That might change, and soon enough. 
Believe me, this contract benefits you as much as it benefits me. If my authority were to extend to this region, it would entail the revision of nearly all charters granted by local authorities. Signing this would ensure your educational mission continues uninterrupted. May I read this contract you are proposing? The Baron of Amherst nods his head gravely, using all the body language of a person speaking to a peer of equal social status. Grand Sage Cornwell is under no illusion that the Baron's deference is anything more than a veil for his threats and bullying. Amherst beckons Sir Sean, who is sitting quietly in a corner, and he brings the Baron's proposal forward with much gravitas. Be good, man, and wait in the hallway while the Chancellor considers this deal, would you, Sir Sean? Sir Sean bows and exits the room. The Grand Sage reads the scroll carefully while the Baron waits, sipping his wine. After a long pause, Cornwell says, I need you to indemnify the families of the fallen students. Agreed. And refund them the tuition they paid so far. How about we split the refund so we each pay half? After all, the tuition went into your coffers. Unacceptable, the Grand Sage stands up. You are putting a lot of faith in the Inquisition's ability to bail you out of a very ugly situation. If Inquisitor Sheen fails to return to Ithaca from Tuscarora Mountain, your rangers would find it considerably more difficult to mount another rescue operation before your beheading. We will be prepared the next time around. Amherst starts dropping some bigger names. Not necessary. It's a done deal. Reports are coming in that my rangers have already succeeded in bringing the good Inquisitor to Tuscarora Mountain, and the Cardinals Orsini have already invited me to a meeting in Salem. You no longer have any legal grounds to carry out your proposed execution. King Eddard has agreed to expand the role of the Inquisition in Vinland significantly over the next few years, and, seeing my devotion and piety, the Cardinals Orsini are offering to put my name forward as English Viceroy of Vinland to oversee the whole process. My policy is that it is better to have more friends than enemies. Surely you see the wisdom in that. I have seen little wisdom in your policies thus far. Good evening to you. The Grand Sage walks toward the door. Amherst stands up and calls after him. There is one other issue I could help you with. Richard Chandler. Grand Sage Cornwell freezes with his hand on the doorknob. He turns around slowly. Are you the one that tipped his former master off to his presence here? Leverage, I suppose. Amherst puts his hand over his heart. Never would I dream of such skullduggery. But if someone else should dream it up, you would be game to capitalize on it, I'm sure. All right, then. Tell me how you know about Richard Chandler. The crumbs I like to toss for the little birdies outside my window seem to have attracted a few magpies. Across their chatter, I learn a lot. Sounds like a bird-brained form of skullduggery to me. What do you intend to do with this leverage you have on him? You have seen how I confront my enemies. I want to show you how well I treat my friends. Call him in, will you, Grand Sage? It's late in the evening, and all the apprentices have gone to bed. Amherst calls out. Sir Sean! The Baron's herald opens the door immediately. You called, my lord? Fetch young Richard Chandler, will you? Well, he's right here, my lord. Also, a messenger from the Pony Express has arrived. Have Brother Tuck handle it for me. Begging your pardon, my lord, but the halfling working for the Pony Express insists the letter is for your eyes only. Tell him I will receive him as soon as I have concluded an agreement with the Grand Sage. Now, please send Apprentice Chandler in. Very well, my lord. 
Amherst cannot restrain a little smirk at Cornwell's surprise, seeing the jovial young man walk in. His nose is round as a ball and his face plump and smooth. His wavy brown hair falls back from his high forehead, giving him an air of intelligence and confidence. Richard Chandler shakes Cornwell's hand and says, Thank you so much for arranging this meeting, Grand Sage Cornwell. The Baron of Amherst ushers the young man to the fireplace. Welcome, come in, Apprentice Chandler. Have a seat and let me pour you some wine. Richard Chandler sits right down and makes himself comfortable. You are too kind, my lord. Your generosity to your friends is legendary, but to treat a runaway slave in the employ of your bitterest enemy with such cordiality defies all comprehension. Happy to oblige, Richard, answers Amherst. Or should I call you Benjamin? The young man laughs. Ah, you figured me out. My father always used to tell me, love your enemies, for they tell you the truth about yourself. Amherst echoes Benjamin's laugh theatrically. That is precisely why I invited you here, to show you what kind of friend I could be if only we can work out a way to dispel this enmity between your college and my regime. Tell me, Benjamin, about your troubles. The Grand Sage gives the young man a look of warning to keep quiet. Benjamin Chandler nods to him as if submitting to his request and then immediately pours his heart out to Amherst. My father, Josiah, is a candle-maker from Acton, a little community of humans within the shire of the Hampton Hobbs. Life was hard for the family back in England, so he came to Boston as an indentured servant. When I was ten years old, he paid for two years of my education at a monastery near Cambridge in hopes of having a son gain prominence in the church. But when the funds ran out, he apprenticed me to my older brother, James, who had set up his own tallow candle-maker's workshop. James was jealous of my ability to read and of my natural aptitude for sorcery. He strictly forbade me from reading any more books and promised to hunt me down whenever I tried to sneak off to a monastery library. One after another, I visited every library in Boston, thirsty for knowledge. He became so familiar with all those libraries that the hide-and-seek we were playing ceased to have any sporting fun left in it. A friend of mine tipped me off that the law granting serfs freedom after living 101 days in a chartered English town also applies to contracted apprentices who enlist in a chartered military, academic, or religious institution without English domains. So I stole away to Ithaca in pursuit of a career in sorcery with the hopes that it would take my brother more than 101 days to find me. Unfortunately, he seems to have gone all the way around the world in 80 days. Now that he's here, he'll drag me back to Boston and lock me in a dark, dank room. The boredom of candle-making will be the mildest of my punishments. My brother will think up ways to get back at me, and trust me, he has an active imagination when it comes to inflicting misery on others. The Baron of Amherst listens to the story intently. How old are you now, young Benjamin? Nineteen, sir. How would you like to fulfill your father's dream to make a cleric of you in Brother Tuck's monastery? Benjamin puts his fist to his mouth and coughs slightly. My lord, a very credible astrologer has told me that the stars forbid me to take on monastic vows. I was born precisely between two conjunctions that would really bring disaster upon me and Holy Mother the Church if I did take the vow of... <clears throat> your astrologer has perhaps seen a weakness for pretty ladies in your eye, suggests Amherst. The astrologer was a very pretty lady herself, but she told me I was the sort of rebel destined to transform colonial Vinland. Perhaps we could talk about the dreams I have for my own life instead of my father's dreams for me. 
Amherst snaps his fingers and sits up excitedly. She has seen the fire in your eyes, Mr. Benjamin Chandler, and I have seen it too. On that desk there, I have a document declaring you a Franklin in my court. The moment you sign it, you will be free from your apprenticeship to your brother by your oath of civic service to the barony of Amherst. Naturally, you'd be able to pursue your studies here at Silvermorn. Your ethereal experiments in harnessing the power of lightning with a kite and a key have already gained notoriety among your peers. All I ask is that you go on a quest or two if needed. Ebullient and optimistic, Benjamin Chandler turns to the Grand Sage and asks, What do you say, Grand Sage? This seems to me like the opportunity of a lifetime, the answer to all our problems. It's your life, Richard. No doubt we would be thrilled for you to continue your studies as a sorcerer's apprentice with us here at Silvermorn. However, I have a feeling your debt of gratitude to the Baron of Amherst will get more and more encumbered with obligations until the studies will become impossible. Amherst jumps in before Benjamin Chandler has a chance to think it over too much. The contract stipulates that as my Franklin, you would be obliged to leave Silvermorn in my service no more than one semester every other year. You would graduate with your master's degree in sorcery in five years tops, potentially earlier. We'll even throw in paid summers whether or not we call you up for service. Done, says the apprentice Chandler, standing up to shake Amherst's hand. The Baron of Amherst turns a triumphant smile to the Grand Sage. We can agree on one thing, dear Chancellor. We both recognize talent when we see it. Shall we agree to a mutually beneficial contract, then? Guaranteed employment for all Silvermorn graduates who seek it in my court? Indemnities and half-tuition refunds for the families of the students who fell at the walls? An official elevation of Benjamin Chandler to the rank of Franklin in my baronial court? Let's move on with the future, shall we? Cornwell looks long and hard at his star pupil. Throw in Chandler's full tuition, and you have a deal. With a coy smile, Amherst concludes, You drive a hard bargain, Chancellor, but I'm in no mood to drag this out any further. Sir Sean, the document, please. Sir Sean pops back in with a scroll on a tray, followed by Brother Tuck, armed with a quill pen, inkwell, lit candle, and some sealing wax. Amherst picks up the scroll and unfurls it in front of the Grand Sage, then dictates the negotiated conditions for his cleric to write down. Cornwell leans over Brother Tuck's shoulder, reading and rereading every word as it goes down on the parchment. Brother Tuck's penmanship, spelling, and grammar are impeccable, and despite his better judgment, Cornwell can find no technicality for backing out of this deal. A deep, sinking feeling warns him that he is headed down a direful path, but he waves it off for the sake of his students and their loved ones. Mind you, Lord Amherst, a contract signals a political alliance, not an act of abject submission to your whims. Amherst's mind is already elsewhere, and he blankly agrees. Yes, 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 of course. Cornwell begrudgingly signs and seals the scroll. Benjamin Chandler gets up and puts an arm around the Grand Sage's shoulder as if sharing a family hug. The Grand Sage is nonplussed by the excessive show of familiarity, but he holds his tongue. Chandler tries to lighten the dour mood. What the noble Grand Sage means to say is that without freedom of thought, there can be no such thing as wisdom. We will always tell you the truth as best as we can discern it. Whether you take that as a token of friendship or enmity depends on the greatness of your spirit. Amherst admires the young man's quick wit and feels reassured that the tuition scholarship Cornwell muscled into the deal will be money well spent. 
Brilliantly stated, young man. Now, if you will excuse me, it seems an urgent message through the Pony Express is waiting for me. Make no mistake about it. In the upcoming days, we will plan a celebration of our newfound accord for all Ithacans. Feasts, tournaments, dramas, and entertainers. Benjamin jumps right into his new role. As your new Franklin, I would be honored to serve on the planning committee for this celebration, my lord. Ushering them out, the Baron concludes with a grandiose swirl of his arm. As my Franklin, you shall be the head of that committee. Good evening, Grand Sage. Adieu. The Sword of Laban With an almost impolite shove, the Baron steers Cornwell out of the room and waves his herald and the halfling messenger waiting at the door to come inside. The messenger hands him a sealed letter, but Amherst does not touch it. He waves to his herald. Whose seal is it, Sir Sean? The halfling courier, in long riding boots, about as long as his short legs can fit into, steps past Sir Sean Madigan briskly. Begging your pardon, my lord, but even the seal is for your eyes only. All right, set it on the table, says the Baron of Amherst. Sir Sean is my most trusted adviser, but your discretion is commendable. Here, let me pour you some wine while you warm yourself by the fire. Sorry, my lord, but we have an oath that prevents us from ungodly language and strong drink. The Baron of Amherst nods. Yes, that was my understanding. I wanted to make sure you actually are with the Pony Express. Few people know about your special work requirements. Several of my enemies have plotted my demise with false letters and poisoned packets. Your insistence that I be the only one to see this delivery came across as suspicious, but you passed the test. Here's a newly minted groat for your troubles. The halfling postal worker looks at the coin quizzically. How much is a groat worth, my lord? Benjamin Chandler loves math and explains. Four pennies. He that spends a groat a day idly spends idly above six pounds a year. Sir Sean adds, It'll more than cover a hearty meal and a good night's rest at the dancing pony. Amherst concludes, You're dismissed now. What did you say your name was again? Underhill, my lord. Oh, that's a splendid name for a halfling. Mr. Underhill, please check back at my door first thing in the morning before you depart, in case I have an immediate response for the sender. Yes, my lord. The halfling bows respectfully. His frizzy sideburns sway with every motion of his head. Though his eyes are young, his sun-dried brow and rugged cheeks speak of a rough life in the saddle, with few creature comforts. After the Pony Express rider exits the room, Sir Sean Madigan picks up the letter off the table. It's the seal of Cardinal Orsini. Amherst asks, Which one? Each of the three Orsini brothers keep wanting to make his importance felt over the other two. Sir Sean inspects it closely, but looks up and says, Can't tell. The imprint on the wax is all smudged and fuzzy. My guess is they want you to know it's really from them while still retaining a measure of deniability. One swipe of the thumb would efface it entirely. Benjamin asks politely, May I have a look? Amherst raises his eyebrows. By all means! You're in my court now, Mr. Franklin, a trusted advisor. The flattery takes its effect on the new Franklin. He looks at it carefully and reports. I'd say this is coming from the office of Moderno Cardinal Orsini, my lord. He has made quite a reputation for himself as being the brains behind their witch trials. Paterno Cardinal Orsini is the ferocious one, the reason the people of Boston have started calling them the Three Bears. Actually, if my paltry Italian serves me right, Orsino is the diminutive form of Orso. We should be calling the Orsini brothers the Three Little Bears. It's the little one among them, Piccolo Cardinal Orsini, 
who adds the whimsical unpredictability to the whole operation that makes the very sound of the word inquisition drive terror into the hearts of the general populace. Terror hardly begins to describe it, Mr. Franklin, comments Sir Sean dryly. It's one thing to be condemned to torture and death for a crime you never committed. It's another thing entirely to be condemned to hell for a sin you never committed. Amherst waves his fingers to shoo away the whole conversation and says, Putting a little fear of God into the hearts and minds of the Bostonians can be useful. Anyhow, what does the letter say? Sir Sean breaks open the seal and unfurls the scroll. It's in Latin, sir. Let's have Brother Tuck read it carefully. I want to know anything you can deduce from the letter, not just its contents. Was it written with an agitated hand? Is he trying to impress me with the cost of the parchment? Is the tone subtly threatening, or is he trying to hide desperation or some less obvious vulnerability? Brother Tuck motions toward a seat near the hearth fire, and the Baron nods. He sits and examines the letter, front to back, turning it over and reading it twice. The Baron's patience eventually wears thin. He asks, What can you tell us? Without a little more context, it will be hard for me to surmise exactly the implications, but Cardinal Moderno writes to ask help investigating a very delicate matter. Benjamin snaps his fingers and calls out, I was right! It is Moderno after all! Amherst commends him patiently. Very good, Benjamin. Now, let's hear what it says. Brother Tuck clears his throat. Ah, uh, yes... After the formalities, it says, and I quote, Now that you have been appointed by King Eddard, the secular strong arm of the Holy Inquisition in Vinland. I'm not sure what he means by that. The Baron of Amherst sips his wine by the fireside. Yes, yes, in my letter describing our relationship with Inquisitor Sheen, I implied that our patronage might expand by royal decree without getting into specifics. My contacts at King Eddard's court in London should hammer out something official in a few months. For now, time is of the essence, so until I get a response from the king, I'm improvising as I go along. Very well, my lord, says Brother Tuck. So, what does the Inquisition want of me? It says they had an intruder break into their residence in Salem. Let's see here. Yes. So, I'll do my best to translate these few paragraphs here. <clears throat> Your stay in Ithaca has made you the closest friend we have to a very delicate and confidential matter. Upon successful completion of this quest, we will guarantee your appointment as Viceroy of Vinland by His Holiness Pope Martin and support any accusation of heresy you make against your enemies. Last night, a document of inestimable value was stolen from our residence. The Roman Curia has charged Raymond Bertrand de Goethe a powerful and well-connected cleric from Franklin, with the task of extirpating all Cather heretics from the lands of Occitania and Lombardia. The archdeacon sent to us a certain Parisian doctor by the name of George Faust, asking us to aid and abet him in every possible manner. As it turns out, his quest was to locate and obtain the lost sword of Laban. After much diligence, Dr. Faust discovered this ancient artifact in the possession of the hill dwarves of Camorra. The dwarves demanded of him the exorbitant fee of 8,000 gold florins, or 2,400 silver marks for this ancient artifact. Reluctantly, he obtained the funds in the form of a banknote from the Knights Templar Preceptory in Rochester. According to the agreement, the hill dwarves of Camorra were to exchange the sword for the banknote after the Templar lore masters had verified its authenticity. The verification process took several months, 
But on the feast of St. Mary the Egyptian, documents finally arrived from the Templar lore masters, certifying the authenticity of the Sword of Laban. The Templar bankers duly forwarded the payments to the hill dwarves of Camorra and sent Dr. Faust a receipt of the transaction along with a safe deposit slip so that he could come claim the sword from their vaults in the Templar preceptory of Rochester. Upon receiving these documents, Dr. Faust handed them to us for safekeeping in our residence before he went into Boston to purchase equipment and hire adventurers to escort him safely and secretly to Rochester and back. That morning, before leaving to hear cases, my brother Piccolo put the Templar safe deposit slip to claim the sword of Laban in a secret compartment in his parlor chair. Under his bed, he devised a trap door to conceal the Templar's certification of authenticity and the purchase receipt for the sword. By the grace of divine providence, all three of us returned home early that day and saw that all our parlor chairs had been tampered with but that Piccolo's had been completely disassembled. No doubt, someone tipped the thief off. Fearing the worst, we rushed upstairs and surprised a young girl with curly blonde hair rummaging through Piccolo's bed. Before we could get a good look at her face, she escaped with great dexterity out the second-floor window and eluded the Swiss guards we sent after her. Fortunately, she did not find the receipt and certificate hidden under the trap door beneath Piccolo's bed. Asking ourselves how it would be possible for an intruder to know precisely where and when to look for these documents, we could only conclude that we had been betrayed by one of our household servants. Normally, we dismiss all our servants while we are away and lock the residence up carefully. It was Piccolo who noticed that a bowl of porridge had been eaten in our absence. The porridge in the pot was too cold for the cook to have accidentally left it on the fire while away, and too hot for him to have extinguished the flame before leaving. Therefore, the cook must have been in the house while we were away and warmed up the porridge for Goldilocks after letting her into the house. Before he expired, we learned from the cook that though Goldilocks has the safe deposit slip, she does not yet know which Templar bank holds the sword of Laban in its vaults. That is why she needed the receipt as well. Your quest, Lord Amherst, should you choose to accept it, is to recover the sword of Laban and deliver it to us in Salem before Goldilocks and her co-conspirators can find it. Without the safe deposit slip, you may need to break into the vault and steal it yourself. If you or any of your agents are caught or killed, the Holy Office of the Inquisition will disavow any knowledge of your actions. This letter is to be burnt immediately after reading it upon pain of excommunication. Brother Tuck tosses it into the fire. Quickly, Amherst grabs a fire poker and tries to rescue the letter, but the flames consume it with such a burst of light and smoke as to leave little doubt that it had been brushed with linseed oil before sending. The Baron of Amherst huffs as he sits back down. Brother Tuck, your obedience and following instructions is commendable, but if backed in a corner, that letter could have been useful. Brother Tuck stands up to the Baron. With all due respect, my lord, if you pulled out a letter like that when backed in a corner, you would be dead before you could think of a proper use for it. Oh, all right, concedes the baron. What is so important about this sword, anyway? Brother Tuck sits back down and clears his throat. If my memory serves, the sword of Laban is used as a part of a black flame ritual in the art of necromancy. Benjamin Chandler adds, Some of the students were talking about that the other day. I think it can transform a living person into an undead state. They were calling it a type of evil transubstantiation. Brother Tuck corrects him. There is no evil form of transubstantiation. The correct term in theology for that would be transmogrification. Amherst rubs his chin. 
Confusing, isn't it? When I pledged myself to support Inquisitor Sheen, did I not take the Crusader's vow to fight the Black Flame heresy in Vinland? Now the Holy Office of the Inquisition is asking me to fetch an artifact that would allow them to engage in Black Flame necromancy. Doesn't that violate my own Crusader's vow? Brother Tuck tugs at the collar of his monk's cowl and says, Theologically speaking, we can make a distinction. You only swore to fight the Black Flame heresy in Vinland. This sword of Laban will be shipped off to Franklin. By removing it from Vinland, you will be keeping it out of the hands of Black Flame heretics here, and thus fulfilling your vow. Amherst pauses, then says, It disturbs me how easily you are able to convince me that black is white and white is black. Both are liturgical colors, my lord. Amherst shrugs and turns to his herald, saying, Sir Sean, what's your opinion? Is it possible to take on this quest without risking war with the Knights Templar? One way immediately comes to mind, if it pleases your lordship. Duquesne's Amulet Go on. Remember that party of adventurers you hired to hunt down the heir of the late Marquis Duquesne? I'm quite sure they don't know they're working for you. At least, they've asked no questions. Amherst thinks for a moment and replies, Yes, you sent them out years ago, if I recall correctly. I thought they had abandoned that quest. Holding up a bone amulet with scrimshaw letters, he says, Apparently not. They brought me this amulet as proof that they succeeded. Why didn't you tell me this before? They just arrived yesterday to inform me that their quest has been accomplished. They're waiting for their reward at the Dancing Pony. How did they find us here? asks the Baron. If they could track down a boy that nearly every Frank in Vinland is trying to hide, how hard could it have been for them to track down your army? Supposedly, they don't know I hired them. Don't worry, my lord. They're all hush-hush. The worry on the Baron's forehead visibly heightens. Their silence doesn't prove their ignorance of my involvement in the plot to assassinate young Lawrence Duquesne. They could use it against me. Their silence proves they understand the risk of double-crossing us, my lord. We'll discuss it later. Right now we have to decide whether or not to seek out the Sword of Laban for the Cardinals of the Inquisition, and, if so, whom to send. A war with the Templars would ruin us, and I'm not so sure we'll be able to count on your adventurer's discretion or thoroughness on this one. This quest is time-sensitive, and they took years to accomplish the last quest. Besides, this amulet proves nothing. The boy might still be alive for all we know. Think of it from the other direction, my lord. Our treasury is full from our recent conquest of Montreal, my lord. Why risk stiffing these adventurers out of the reward they earned for fulfilling this quest right at the moment when they are our only option to cement our alliance with the Holy Office of the Inquisition? Only option? The whole army is at my disposal. You can't send the whole army. Only a small party of adventurers with no formal links to you can complete a quest like this. We don't have time to putz around weighing options and conducting job interviews for qualified but obscure candidates. Let's not underestimate Goldilocks. She's got a three-day head start on us. We must assume that she has friends in every town and village from Boston to Oregon. She probably speaks a dozen languages and knows every local custom. She'll blend in, disappear. Unless we send out a crack team of elite adventurers right away, she will have the Sword of Laban before our people even reach Rochester. Amherst shakes his head, gets up, and starts pacing around the room. After a short while, he announces, 
Sir Sean, I don't like it. I simply don't trust these adventurers. They're sloppy, slow, and inconsistent. A quest of this importance requires someone quick, efficient, and loyal. That presents a paradox, my lord. You expect us to entrust this quest to someone who has no association with you, but is perfectly loyal and competent. Amherst snaps his fingers and stops pacing. Wait! I have an idea. These adventurers could prove useful if only we appointed a proper leader to keep them in check. We would need someone whose loyalty I trust not to cheat me, but has no known public association with me that could get me in trouble with the Templars if caught, and is clever enough to tangle with sly adventurers. I do believe we have found our man. He and Sir Sean slowly turned their heads to gaze at the youngest person in the room. What do you say, Benjamin Franklin?